0: Good evening, and welcome to the third week of the 1987 Rare Book School. Our lecturer on Thursday of this week is Milton Gatch, who is in the back of the room tonight, who will be speaking on John Bagford, the celebrated 18th century English antiquary uh, and say some bag man. Ah, the lost are finally found. Boy, don't they look like the number one subway. I think we'll leave the back air conditioner on, please. And, uh, the room will be tolerable for the duration of the lecture. Tomorrow night, Wednesday night, there will be a variety of videotapes and films shown in room 508, the media projection room, and that schedule is posted on the door. Remember, there are also uh, videotapes shown during the lunch hour break and uh, between 5 and 6. It's also the case, by the way, that if there is any videotape that we have, that uh, you are particularly panting to see, we'll be perfectly happy to screen it for you on an individual basis if you have any time during the course of the day. There is a complete list of the films and videotapes that we own, and uh, that can be found in room 508. If you want to negotiate about those, Jerry Grant, uh, the big one, in the doorway, I'm sure will be sure to help. He is, however, occupying a role at the moment as model (laughs) after uh, (laughs) after uh, desperate negotiation with our t-shirt and apron manufacturer the t-shirts and aprons have arrived would you hold the t-shirt up Jer? small medium large and extra large small Thank you. Those the aprons are seven. The aprons are seven dollars, and the t-shirts are five dollars, and they are available after the lecture tonight, uh, and they will be available also at the reception on Friday afternoon for anyone who wants one, or if you can catch a staff member between now and then as well. Our lecture this evening is uh, one of those sorts who needs no introduction to this audience. He is Donald Gallup, and it is a great pleasure to welcome him to Columbia.
1: Thank you, Uh, Terry. I'm glad to be part of the Rare Book School, and particularly of that section of it conducted by Anthony Rhoda. He and his father, Bertram Rhoda, have been very important in my own personal collecting for uh, over a half a century. The Dial papers. The presence in the Yale Collection of American Literature of the Gertrude Stein papers was an invaluable aid in securing similar material from other sources. Forty years ago, the commercial value of such manuscripts and letters was still almost negligible and considerations of safekeeping and availability seemed to count for more than did the possibility of financial return. Lincoln Kirstein, the director of the New York City Ballet Company, came to New Haven to use the Stein notebooks for the making of Americans in connection with the catalog for an exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art of the sculptor Ailey Nadelman. Can, Can everyone hear me? We had lunch at the faculty club and talked about The Hound and Horn, the periodical devoted to art and letters that he had founded and edited first at Harvard and then in New York from 1927 to 1934. When I said that the Houghton Library must have invited him long since to place the magazine's archives at Harvard, he told me that his own university had no interest in the papers and asked if Yale wanted them. I replied that we would most definitely like to have the collection, and he agreed on the spot to give it to us. In a matter of days, the papers arrived, a rich literary treasure. The immediate predecessor of and model for the Hound and Horn on the American literary scene had been the dial. Begun in Chicago in 1880, the magazine harked back to the distinguished periodical of the same name edited from 1840 to 1844 by Margaret Fuller and Ralph Waldo Emerson and contributed to by the, the other, other major New England writers. The Chicago Dial had been moved to New York in July 1918 and was purchased in November 1919 by Schofield Thayer and James Sibley Watson, Jr., both graduates of Harvard. Under their direction, with notable editorial assistance from Gilbert Seldes, Stuart Mitchell, Elise Gregory, and Marianne Moore, the New Dial became the most distinguished periodical for arts and letters of the decade. From January 1920 until publication ceased in 1929, it printed poetry and prose of Sherwood Anderson, Mike Brooks, Kenneth Burke, Malcolm Cowley, Hart Crane, E. E. Cummings, H. D., T. S. Eliot, D. H. Lawrence, Henry McBride, Thomas Mann, Marianne Moore, George Santayana, Wallace Stevens, Paul Valery, William Carlos Williams, Edmund Wilson, W. B. Yeats, and other important writers, along with reproductions of paintings and drawings by Oscar Kokoschka, Gaston Lachaise. Aristide Maillol, Henri Matisse, Edvard Munch, Pablo Picasso, and other significant artists. When illness obliged Schofield Thayer to resign as editor in 1926, he was succeeded by Marianne Moore. But Dr. Watson continued to serve as publisher throughout the life of the magazine. Lincoln Kirstein suggested that Dr. Watson now consultant in medicine at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry, would probably know what had happened to the Dial's archives. I wrote him in March 1949, explaining that Yale was very much interested in preserving and making available to scholars such important collections of papers. He answered that, at Schofield Thayer's request, the files had been turned over to his guardian. Dr. Watson had forgotten this, but had been reminded of it by Marianne Moore. He was sure that the papers must be in storage somewhere, but doubted they could be released during the lifetime of Thea, who had been certified insane in 1930. I thanked Dr. Watson and told him that several of his letters were included in the Gaston Lachaise papers that Lincoln Kirstein had just placed at Yale. It was Lincoln who, working on an exhibition for Nerdlers, the New York Gallery, honoring Henry McBride as art critic and collector, discovered that Thayer's art collection, including originals of many of the objects reproduced in the Dial's pages and in the Dial Publishing Company's portfolio, Living Art, name was on deposit in the Worcester Museum of Art. My letter to the museum was forwarded to Thayer's guardian, his friend Walter A. Edwards, senior member of the law firm of Edwards and Angel in Providence, Rhode Island. He answered on the 8th of November that he wanted to consider the proposal that the dial papers to be deposited in the Yale Library, and warned that it might be several months before he could come to a decision. I told Jim Babb, the librarian, that the papers had last been located, and he wrote Edwards on the 10th that the Yale University Library would be very proud and happy to be the final depository for the Dial Literary Archives. I relayed the news also to Dr. Watson, and at the same time wrote to my Yale classmate, Charles P. Williamson, a member of the Edwards and Angel firm, suggesting that a few words in Yale's behalf from him to Edwards might help. Charlie reported on the 18th that he had spoken to Walter Edwards, who was impressed with the rapidity of the action of the Yale Library in endeavoring to secure this literary treasure. But he warned that we were dealing dealing with a staunch Harvard alumnus. He explained that the papers were in a warehouse in Worcester and that Edwards would have to go there to look them over. He will do so in the next few months and will notify you at that time what the final disposition will be. Best regards and good hunting. I acknowledged Charlie's letter on the 21st, saying that I was sorry to learn that Edwards was a Harvard man, but, (laughs) but adding that there was a possibility that Harvard would show no more interest here than they did in the case of the Hound and Horn correspondence, which Lincoln Kirstein, Harvard 29, gave us recently, because Harvard was not interested. We can only hope. Our grounds for optimism were considerably strengthened by a letter from Edwards early in January 1950. He had gone to Worcester and made a somewhat cursory, his words, examination of the dial files. There were two cartons of correspondence between the editorial staff and contributors with proofs and a style book with editorial instructions. A third carton contained a card index of contributors with prices paid for articles and so forth. It's quite interesting. His letter continued, <clears throat> It seems to me that these three cartons contain everything which would be of interest to you, except for some correspondence of Mr. Scofield Thayer's, which I do not feel at liberty to give access to during his lifetime. I have not yet reached a final decision, but I am favorably inclined toward depositing with the Yale Library on loan so much of the contents of the three cartons which I have mentioned as you would be interested in. Before I reach a final decision, I should like to know what the usual restrictions are on the use and publication of material deposited with the Library on loan and any suggestions which you might have with respect to the terms of deposit. As you know, I think, I am Mr. Thayer's guardian and am not able to make any gift of his property. The most that I could do would be to make a deposit of it during his lifetime. I replied at once, saying that the cartons appeared to contain the material in which we were most interested. If he decided finally to deposit them in the Air Library on Thayer's behalf, under such mutually agreeable conditions as we might work out, we should be delighted. I outlined suggestions for the terms modeled upon those which governed the use of similar papers already deposited at Yale. On the 2nd of February, Edwards wrote again to ask whether Yale had a complete run of the dial, and if not, whether we'd care to have a bound set on loan. I reported that we owned a complete bound file in the main library, and an incomplete, mostly unbound set in the collection of American literature but that it would be useful to have the complete magazine, Bound, available for use with the archive. Edwards informed us on the 20th that he had decided to place the dial papers in the Aileen Ristey Library, along with the bound set of the periodical, and suggested only two minor changes in the conditions I had proposed. As soon as the shipment was arranged, he would write us more formally. I acknowledged his letter on the 21st, expressing our gratification at his decision, and suggested that he address his letter to the librarian and that the material be shipped at our expense by Ra- railway express. On the 7th of March, Edwards replied, enclosing a letter for me to hand to Jim Babb. That letter set out the conditions under which he, as guardian of Scofield Thea, was depositing in the Yale Yale library the bound set of the dial and the three cartons of dial papers. The deposit could be terminated at any time by Edwards or any successor guardian or by Thayer himself or by Thayer's executor or administrator and the material was to remain Thayer's property. The material was to be open to inspection and use by qualified scholars under the same general conditions as govern similar manuscript material deposited in the Yale Library, subject to these specific provisions. No letter, manuscript, or unpublished printed material was to be copied, reproduced, or exhibited without specific consent of Thayer's guardian, Thayer himself, or his executor or administrator. The material cannot be lent or removed from the Yale Library. The name of the depositor or his ward could not be disclosed but the collection was to be known merely as the Dial Magazine Collection. The material was to be properly arranged to facilitate its use, adequately protected at all times, and kept together. The guardian, Thea himself, his executor or administrator, or any authorized agent of any of them, was to have access to the material at all convenient times. I acknowledged receipt of both letters on the 8th of March and handed the enclosed one to Jim Babb, who replied on the 10th, accepting the conditions. The material was actually delivered that afternoon, and I sent a general acknowledgement to Edwards the following morning, promising that a detailed listing would follow. I typed this out myself and sent it off on the 21st. Over Over the following years, The Dial Papers, as word spread of their availability at Yale, were used increasingly by scholars. In March 1956, a request to quote in a dissertation some of Ezra Pound's letters to Marianne Moore as editor of the Dial caused Edwards to ask for clarification of our position on publication of material from the archive. I replied that we felt The dial correspondence was at Yale for just such a purpose as this, and should certainly recommend that permission for the use of the passages from the pound letters be granted. Although it was cumbersome for us to be obliged by the terms of the deposit to preserve the anonymity of both Thea and his guardian, the procedure worked on the whole smoothly. I don't recall that either Edwards or his successor guardians ever refused anyone permission to have copies of or to quote from the Dial papers. In 1956, Francis Henry Taylor, having resigned as director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, returned to the Worcester Art Museum. He began at once to plan, as his first major exhibition there, a showing of the Dial art collection, the deposit of which he had secured through Thayer's Guardian in 1931, during his first term as director. He asked Nicholas Joost, Joost, then at Assumption College in Worcester, to prepare in connection with the exhibition and its catalog, a book about Scofield, Thayer, and the Dial. To facilitate the writing of this history, Taylor persuaded Walter Edwards to deposit at the museum the Scofield Thayer correspondence that he had not felt at liberty to send to New Haven with the other dial materials in 1950. Yost worked on these papers through most of 1957, assisted by a grant from Bollingen Foundation, and came to Yale to use the dial material on deposit with us. Then, early in November, Francis Taylor suddenly died. The trustees and staff of the museum carried on the plans for the Dial exhibition under the supervision of Taylor's successor, Daniel Catton Rich, who had resigned as director of the Chicago Museum, and it opened on 30 April 1959. The catalog listed the entire Dial art collection on loan at Worcester and included essays by Henry McBride and Dan Rich. Norman Pearson and I drove up to see the show in August. I reported to Edwards on the 31st that I was particularly interested to see the letters addressed to Mr. Thayer, which you separated from the generally later correspondence which we have, for the most part, addressed to members of the editorial staff. I understand that Dr. Nicholas Yost When he went through this correspondence, removed and sealed such items as were of a personal nature. The remaining items are bound to be very closely connected with the material which you have already deposited with us. As examples, the first part, 1925 and before, of the correspondence between T.S. Eliot and the Dial, relating to the publication in the magazine of his The Wasteland and The Hollow Men, is apparently in Worcester. Only the later material is here, at Yale. And the same division affects the Ezra Pound correspondence. I am sure that many of the other authors must be affected in the same way. In short, a scholar using the material we have gets a very incomplete picture of the Dial achievement. A number of users of the Dial papers now at Yale have commented to us on this lack of the earlier material. We are delighted and honored to have here the part of the Dial correspondence which we have entrusted to us. Now that the personal items have been separated by Yost from the material still at the Worcester Museum, is there any possibility that that part of the correspondence could also be deposited at Yale? Edwards replied in November that he didn't have time to examine the papers and didn't want to do anything about transferring the, the additional items until he had gone over them. I answered that I understood his position, but hoped that eventually the papers at the Worcester Museum could be reunited with the material deposited at Yale to make a more complete picture of the history of the magazine. The exhibition and the publication of its catalog stimulated increased interest in the periodical. In 1963, William Wasserstrom at Syracuse University published his The Time of the Dial and a dial miscellany, a selection of material printed in the magazine. In the following year appeared Schofield Thea and the Dial, an illustrated history by Nicholas Joost. Yost uh, followed this in 1967 by a study of the final years of the Chicago Dial, years of transition, the Dial 1912 to 20. In 1970, by D. H. Lawrence and the Dial, and in 1971 by the Dial Two Author Indexes. Also in 1964, Walter Edwards retired, and Charles Williamson succeeded him as Thayer's guardian. In May, I raised with Charlie the question of the transfer to Yale of the Dial material still at the Worcester Museum, enclosing a copy of the letter I had written to Edwards five years earlier. Charlie promised to look into the matter. The situation was complicated because Yost had not completed his research and naturally preferred to have the papers remain at the museum until he had finished with them. I spent the 10th of June in Worcester examining the Dial papers and discussed them at some length with Dan Rich. I reported to Charlie Williamson on the 2nd of July that Edwards' separation of the letters to Thea from those to members of the Dial staff had broken up most of the correspondences. My letter continued. Mr. Rich and I are agreed that all the literary correspondents should be together at Yale, but he would like to keep at the Worcester Museum the papers that relate to the pictures in the dial collection on deposit there. This seems to me quite reasonable. Mr. Rich has been through all the papers and knows them much better than I do, and I am willing to abide by his decision as to what should stay at Worcester. Because Dr. Yost, Scofield, Thayer and the Dial is expected to reach proof stage this summer and because he will need to check quotations, I agreed with Mr. Rich that the transfer to New Haven of material now at Worcester could be postponed until Dr. Yost's need of it is over, probably in the early fall of this year. I'm delighted at the prospect of having the two parts of the Dial papers once again united and here at Yale and we are all grateful to you for making it possible. Charlie wrote me on the 9th that he agreed that the papers at the Worcester Museum should be transferred to Yale after Dr. Yost has no further need of them. But I had apparently misunderstood the position of Dan Rich, for he wrote me on the 21st. I'm afraid I did not make myself completely clear in our conversation, It would be perfectly possible to go through the correspondence in Worcester and make copies of every sheet dealing with art objects in the Dial collection, but this would be a long and extremely tedious task. The entire correspondence is so inextricably intertwined as far as art, literature, and personality go that I think you would find it difficult to separate. I wonder if it would not be better for the correspondence to remain in Worcester until after Mr. Thayer's death, from time to time we might wish to be able to consult the letters when some special piece of information is needed. As I told you, we are in favour of the idea that all correspondence eventually go to Yale. I really feel for the present time it would be much more helpful to us to keep it here. I replied in September explaining that my idea was that certain complete exchanges almost exclusively pertaining to art matters, could stay at Worcester indefinitely, while the rest of the correspondence would be transferred to Yale after certain letters have been copied photographically for your files. But you know the papers as I don't, and it may be that this procedure is an impossible one to carry out. I feel very strongly that trustees and heirs are on the whole inclined to honor the status quo, provided nothing has to disturb it. If the pictures are at Worcester and the papers for the most part at Yale when Mr. Thayer dies, the chances are better, it seems to me, that the pictures and papers will stay where they are. But if part of the papers are at Yale and part at Worcester, then the matter of their final disposition will have to come up for discussion in a way that would not otherwise be necessary, and I tremble for what might happen. If we could somehow between us get the matter of the division of the papers settled to both our satisfactions now, or rather as soon as Dr. Yost is through with them, there would, it seems to me, be less risk, at least for Yale, in the future. I was very much impressed by the elaborate card indexes that Dr. Yost had set up. Would these not make it easy to get from us copies of anything you needed and didn't already have? Dan Rich retired as director of the Worcester Museum in 1970, but the situation continued unresolved until 1971. In October of that year, Charles Williamson, as guardian of Scofield Thea, sent to Yale as a gift from the Scofield Thea Trust 80 shares of Abbott Laboratories stock. Our classmate, Spencer Miller, was now associate treasurer, And he and I agreed that the most appropriate way of using the proceeds of the sale of the Thayer stock, $4,950, would be for the cataloging of the Dial papers. I wrote Charlie of our decision, adding that having the papers fully listed would enormously facilitate their use by scholars. And once more, I returned to the question of the transfer to Yale of the papers still at the Worcester Museum. This is a quotation from my letter. Since it would obviously be better to have both groups of papers together here at Yale before we began the cataloging, this, this raises again the question of whether the papers still at Worcester could not now be brought to Yale. I haven't had any correspondence with Dr. Yost recently, and I'm not certain of the state of his researches on the Dial collection. Charlie replied that he was writing to Yost. If his work with the papers at Worcester was now complete, then the papers could be transferred. In November, Charlie wrote to Miss Louisa Dresser, the curator, that all of the papers except Thayer's correspondence with Elise Gregory and with Dr. Albert C. Barnes, Argyrol, concerning Picasso, were now to be transferred to Yale. On the 23rd, Miss Dresser notified me that the material was ready, and on the 30th, Charlie wrote to confirm that the Worcester papers would join those already at Yale under the same conditions of loan. On the 6th of December, I wrote him with a copy to Miss Dresser that the rest of the Dial papers had been picked up on the 4th. She had reported to Charlie that the Barnes correspondence had not been located, and he had informed her that those letters and some others had been removed for safekeeping and were now in Providence. Yale agreed to hold the new papers under the same conditions that applied to the first group received from Edwards in 1950. I managed to secure the services of a qualified graduate student for the cataloging job and work on the papers was speedily completed. In the spring of 1972 I began to hear rumors that Dr. Watson did, after all, own some papers pertaining to the dial. It seemed a good idea to try to clear up this matter, and I wrote to Charlie Williamson in March, suggesting that he raise the question with Dr. Watson. He did this, and Dr. Watson answered him on the 17th. If I ever said I had items of dial correspondence, it was a foolish boast. I didn't take anything from the files when the dial ceased publication, nor, so far as I can remember, did I ever do so, except in the case of two very personal letters from Ezra Pound since mislaid, which never got into the files. Gilbert Seldes is said to have taken some personal correspondence home with him and to have lost it in a fire in his apartment. I agree that Yale has done well by the Dial papers under the terms prescribed by Mr. Edwards. Some may inquire, indeed have inquired, how comes it that papers belonging to two Harvard lads are now at Yale? I suspect the answer to be Mr. Gallup. Charlie sent me a copy of this letter. Only a few months later, he died tragically of a heart attack. He was succeeded as Thayer's guardian by John L. Clark, a Yale Law School graduate with whom we continued to have friendly relations in our dealings over the Dial papers. On Saturday, 29 September 1979, Fritz Liebert, Banicki Librarian Emeritus, called me at home to report that Alfred Howell, a former president of the Groyo Club, had invited him to New York to meet Dr. Watson and discuss with him the Dial Papers. Fritz told Howell that this was a matter that should be discussed with me as curator of the Yale Collection of American Literature, and Howell agreed to telephone me. He did call a few days later and explained that Dr. Watson had recently married, as his second wife, a lifelong friend of Mrs. Howell's, The Watsons would be visiting the Howells in New York in mid-October. Dr. Watson wanted to discuss dial papers with someone at Yale. I said I thought these must be papers owned by Dr. Watson himself, but Howell, in closing, referred to the Watsons wishing to establish a claim to the papers deposited at Yale. I relayed this information by telephone to John Clark, who subsequently informed me that he was unable to find in his Thea file any documents relating to the papers. I promised to let him know the outcome of my meeting with Dr. Watson and Mr. Howell at the Century Club the 22nd of October. I consequently reported to Clark on the 23rd that we three had had a pleasant luncheon, discussing the Dial and the Yale collection of American literature generally, but without any reference to a possible Watson claim To ownership of the dial papers. The next day I informed him of a subsequent development. After I had spoken with you yesterday, Mr. Howell telephoned me to report that at dinner that same evening, the 22nd, Dr. Watson told the Howells that it had been agreed between him and Scofield Fair that whoever of the two predeceased the other would have the say as to where the dial papers were to be permanently housed. He did not indicate when this agreement had been made. Obviously, when Dr. Watson wrote me in 1949, there can't have been any such agreement, for he didn't even know what it had become of the papers. It can't have been in effect as recently as March 1972, when Dr. Watson wrote Charlie Williamson about the dial correspondence. Certainly, he'd, he'd have informed Thea's guardian of the agreement had it been then in force. I've discovered a little more of the Rochester background from a conversation this morning with my former assistant, Peter Zwankowski, now head of Rare Books, Manuscripts, and Archives at the University of Rochester Library. He tells me that the Watsons are trying to get the university to do certain things for the museum, Founded by Dr. Watson's mother, in which the Watsons are very much interested. Apparently, they have promised to give the dial papers now on deposit at Yale to Rochester if the university does these certain things for the museum. I certainly hope that Mr. Thayer will continue to thrive and this problem never comes up. Peter Zwankowski had sent me a clipping from the Rochester Times Union of 17 October 1979 which quoted Mrs. Watson as saying that she and her husband will meet Monday with the Rare Books Librarian of Yale University to discuss the future of papers related to the dial. Mrs. Watson said a University of Rochester faculty member had seen the papers and was awestruck but she suggested the University of Rochester is too science-oriented to be interested in them. Other sources said the University of Rochester has indicated strong interest in the papers. John Clark replied on the 26th that he knew there was no specific agreement between Thayer and Watson regarding the Dial papers as such, and certainly Edwards believed they were Thayer's property when he deposited them at Yale in 1950. His letter continued, The only agreement between them was made early in their relationship, 1921, and was to the effect that each's shares of stock in the Dial Publishing Company would become the property of the survivor. But such stock has been considered as worthless for many years. In the event the problem arises, let's hope that Dr. Watson can be persuaded to change his mind about moving the dial papers to the University of Rochester. In the meantime, I join with you in hoping the problem never comes up. Mr. Thayer has already survived three guardians and may well survive the present one as well as Dr. Watson. Indeed, in the end, the problem did not come up. Dr. Watson died on the 31st of March, 1982, and Scofield Thayer lived on until 9 July of that same year, departing this life at the age of 92. His will had been executed in 1925. It provided that the Dial Art Collection would go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, a terrible disappointment for Worcester, and that all of his correspondence, letters, writings, and all manuscripts and literary productions other than printed books were to go to Elise Gregory, should she survive him, to James Sibley Watson, Jr., and, if neither survive him, to Marianne Moore. Thus, ironically, since Elise Gregory had died in 1967, Dr. Watson, had he survived his friend, would indeed have become owner of the Dial Papers. Because all of the beneficiaries mentioned by name in the will had died, Four second cousins were now the sole heirs. The executor was the Morgan Guaranty Trust Company in New York. In 1983, Frederick B. Ingram, the bank's vice president charged with administering the Thayer estate, visited the Beinecke Library to examine the deposited dial papers and arranged to have them appraised for estate purposes by Sotheby's, the New York auction house. On the 11th of August, David Schoonover, my successor as curator of the collection of American literature, wrote Ingram to inquire about their status. The library is, of course, particularly interested in learning the wishes of the heirs concerning the ultimate disposition of the papers. We would like to arrange for a discussion of the options concerning gift or purchase, since circumstances may vary among the heirs. If this is possible, I would appreciate assistance from you in arranging such a discussion. I will look forward to hearing from you. Ingram replied that he would bring the interest of the library to the attention of the Thayer heirs, but warned that they would probably not be able to discuss the final disposition of the Dial Papers for some time. Yale heard nothing for more than three years, but in 1985, there were new developments concerning the papers of Dr. Watson. He and his first wife had had extensive correspondence before, during, and after the Dial period with members of the Dial staff and contributors to the magazine who were their close friends. Dr. Watson had given many of their letters from Marianne Moore to Bryn Moore, where there was now a memorial collection and lectureship. But the papers in his estate includes some 600 letters and 90 manuscripts of Kenneth Burke, more than 200 letters from E. Cummings, dating from 1915, 300 from Elise Gregory, written between 1928 and 1967, more than 100 from Marianne Moore, as well as, surprisingly, a few dial files. Mrs. Watson had had the collection appraised by Christie's in October, 1982. David Schoonover went to Rochester to examine the papers in December 1985 and talked there with the former Mrs. Watson, now Mrs. Dean, and with Dale Davis, Dr. Watson's literary executor. Mrs. Dean wrote Schoonover on the 15th of January 1986, offering to sell the Watson papers to Yale for $80,000. Time was important and the offer would hold for only 30 days some restrictions were to be imposed on access to manuscripts of both Dr. Watson and his first wife, and failure to resolve this problem in time resulted in the withdrawal of the offer. Mrs. Dean subsequently sold the papers to the Berg Collection of the New York Public Library. David Scunova resigned in July 1986, and it was Krista Salmon's acting curator of the Collection of American Literature who received Frederick Ingram's telephone call on the 28th of January 1987 announcing that he wished to pick up all of the deposited dial papers for auction at Sotheby's. When a letter of the same date confirmed the call, Ralph Franklin, director of the Beinecke, began discussions with Ingram, Sotheby's, and a representative of the heirs. but it was impossible to forestall the removal of the papers from the library. The archive was assembled by the Bonnicki staff on the 25th of February, some of the papers having to be withdrawn from use by a reader. They were listed in detail, and at noon on the 26th, Ingram and a representative of Sotheby's carried them away. It happened that Lawrence Stapleton, who had used the papers extensively in writing a book on Marianne Moore, telephoned that same afternoon. Mrs. Sammons had to inform her that the Dial Archive was no longer at Yale and was apparently doomed to be dispersed. I had already given the news to Dale Davis, and she, Professor Stapleton and Patricia Willis, curator-designate of the Collection of American Literature, spread the word to various colleagues who began to bombard the media and the Beinecke Library. On the 12th of March, the New York Times printed a story by Edwin McDowell about the papers, making it clear that the four fair heirs had no idea of the literary and cultural legacy represented by their inheritance. The article quoted Mrs. Willis's statement that, to break up this irreplaceable archive is like taking a national monument and slicing it up in little pieces. The Times cited also Lawrence Dowler, librarian of the Houghton Library at Harvard, as saying that we have laws that protect architectural landmarks, that protect buildings from being torn down, yet we have no laws to prevent the dispersal of this major cultural landmark. Soon after the appearance of the Times story, Mrs. John Robinson, owner of a gallery in New York, well known for her interest in the arts, called the attention of her husband, president of the Beinecke Foundation, to the threatened dispersal of the Dial papers, which had been housed, some of them, for almost a quarter of a century in the library that proudly bore the Beinecke name. Robinson telephoned Ralph Franklin, suggesting that the Beinecke Foundation might be able to help if a purchase of the archive could be arranged in time. Franklin telephoned one of the heirs to ask whether a sale of the papers in their entirety would be possible, but received only a noncommittal reply. On the 17th of March, Sotheby's announced to the Beinecke and some of the leading rare book libraries, including Columbia, I think, that offers to purchase the Dial papers, estimated by them to be worth a million dollars, would be received up until the 10th of April. If no buyer had appeared by that date, the auction catalog would go to press and the papers would be sold in individual lots on the 17th of June. Unfortunately, Robinson was now away from his office for an extended period and negotiations could not begin until his return. On the 27th, Franklin reported to the trustees of the Yale Library Associates, that it had so far proved impossible to arrange a purchase. It's one thing, he continued, that Yale loses the collection, which of course was never really ours except in a custodial sense, but the greater disappointment is that this material, which documents an enterprise of prime importance in the history of modernism in America, should be dispersed. He had suggested to the heirs that they allow the library to microfilm the papers, but they would consent only on condition that Yale agree that it would, one, promise not to disparage publicly the dispersal of the collection, (laughs) two, bid at the auction, and three, be accountable for any future violation of copyright relating to the papers. These conditions the university could not responsibly accept. On the 8th of April, Robinson returned to his office and Yale's negotiations with Sotheby's resumed. An offer was made for the complete archive, now containing the materials formerly stored in Worcester and Providence that had never been part of the deposit. These included diaries of Scofield Thea, some 89 letters of Ezra Pound, 13 letters from T.S. Eliot, numerous letters of Marianne Moore, plus many letters and some extraordinary drawings of E. e. Cummings. At last, after 37 years, the various parts of the Dial archive had finally been reunited. At 3.30 on the 10th of April, Sotheby's telephoned Franklin to accept the Yale offer. Mrs. Sammons drafted a news release, which was revised by the Robinsons and by Franklin, who hand carried it to Yale's Office of Public Information. It was put on the wires, and both the New York Times and the New Haven Register carried the story the next day. Over the following days and weeks, congratulations poured in American literature, wrote Franklin of his personal satisfaction upon reading the Times report that the Dial papers are safe and will repose in Aeternam at Beinecke. Adding that, the decade of the 20s when the Dial flourished most resplendently was illuminated and enriched for me in my own decade of discovery by the monthly issues as they came in in their buff covers and inducted me into my cultural time. In mid-May, Franklin received this message from Benno C. Schmidt, Jr., president of the university. The announcement a few weeks ago of your success in acquiring the Dial Archive was indeed magnificent news to me, and numerous others at Yale. Just to keep the collection intact would have been a major accomplishment, given the forces pressing to disperse it. But to have done that, and also to have negotiated quickly and quietly its return to Yale, are achievements which deserve the recognition and appreciation of the Yale community and scholars throughout the world.
0: to sell this manuscript (laughs) leaf by leaf in the lounge where you will find the speaker and refreshments and I hope you will join us. Room 523.